I want to ask you some questions this morning about what you believe. As I ask you these questions, I'm not asking you to answer me out loud, but rather just to think through how you would answer. First, do you believe that lying and stealing are wrong? Got an answer from a child up there, it's good. Do you think that it is sinful to murder someone? Do you think that sexual activity should be limited to the confines of marriage? Do you think that a Christian is allowed to marry a non-Christian? Do you think that marriage should be only between a man and a woman? Do you think that Jesus really died 2,000 years ago? Do you believe that people can be saved from their sins? So all of these are important questions, and I'm, I'm really curious how you would answer each of them. But underneath all of those questions is another question. It is the question underneath all questions, and it's this question. Do you believe the Bible? Underneath your understanding of salvation, underneath your understanding of ethics, underneath your understanding of morals, is something. Something informs what you believe about all of those things. Where do those beliefs come from? So, the question, is lying wrong, is not just the question, it's one of two questions. The other question is, well, how do you know it's wrong? You see, underneath salvation, underneath morals, underneath ethics, is really what you believe about the Bible. Is the Bible true? Today we're starting a four-message mini-series on why we believe the Bible. And between this Sunday and Labor Day, we're going to look at a number of key subjects that I hope will strengthen your belief and your confidence in the Word of God. My aim is that by the time we're done today and over the next number of weeks, that you will love the Bible more, you'll read the Bible more, you'll memorize the Bible more, you'll talk about the Bible more, you'll obey the Bible more. I want more Bible in all of our lives over the next number of weeks. We usually take the month of August and we sort of center our minds on one particular theme. We called it live over the years, and this is a time when school is starting and we're starting to think about the fall and things of that sort. It's a great moment to consider getting into a small group. We have over 100 spots that are open for you to be engaged in a small group. We have some resources that we're commending to you. Here's two. We have this book by David Helm called One-to-One -One Bible Reading. This will be a great help to you if you are discipling someone or how to have a discipleship group with a couple uh, men or a couple women to be able to have your conversation center on the Word. So how do you incorporate the Bible into a conversation to study it together? This book would greatly help you. And then as well, we have a kind of a simple Bible study method, which involves context, observation, meaning, and application. And this process is the means by which you could examine a passage of Scripture, 
and be able to understand the Bible for yourself. In fact, some of you are um, doing something that I would commend to all of you, which is to read ahead in the text that will be preached the next Sunday. Use that method, study it, see what you can pull out of it, and then come on Sunday and see how close I am to what you believe the text says. That'd be awesome. As a part of all of this focus, we're also on August 26th and 28th, uh, Friday night, Saturday till noon, and then three services on Sunday will be taught by Pastor John Piper. We'll be here. He'll be talking about the self-authenticating nature of the Bible and the supernatural way in which one can read the Bible at this Live Forum. Don't take for granted that we get to have him here and mark your calendars and be here. And then, a little bit unusually, I'm taking a pause in the middle of this series on August 21, where I'm going to preach a message entitled, Ethnicity, Authority, and the Gospel. Biblical perspectives on our cultural divisions. I don't need to explain to you why I'm talking about this, but I will tell you it's an important moment for us to think about what does God's Word say about the realities that we are facing in our world and in our culture, both from a racial standpoint and also from an authority perspective. And then I want to remind you, this is a time of year that many people start thinking about re-engaging in church. This is a great time to invite a neighbor. If you've got someone who's interested in what's going on culturally, invite them to come August 21. You might wonder, well, why'd you pick August 21? Here's why. Because historically, August 21 is our largest Sunday of the month of August, and I think this subject requires as many people here as possible. And then in the fall, September, we'll launch into a series on 1 Peter and what it means to be in exile. I'm sure I don't need to convince you that we live in troubled times. And today, what I want to do is show you how the inspired word relates to troubled times. I can hardly read the newspaper, watch the news, pull up a news app, and that some new problem emerges. I mean, internationally, politically, culturally, morally, spiritually, it seems as though there is very little normal and typical. I find myself shaking my head all the time, wondering what will happen next. In fact, it was refreshing yesterday afternoon just to sit down and watch the Olympics, watch things like handball, crazy sport, and rugby. It's weird. And fencing. Who gets into fencing, right? And, and yet to be able to realize that I could just sit and enjoy that moment and just not have to think about all the other challenges going around, around the world. On the pastoral side, I'm hearing of new challenges that you are facing at home, at work, in the marketplace, and with neighbors. I sense an increasing weariness, and yet I want to tell you, church, this is a great time to be a follower of Jesus. The things that Perhaps we have trusted in, in the past, that we might have put our hope in. Those things are being shaken. It's happening at a personal level and at a societal level, and the beauty of that moment is that it presses us to ask, so where is my foundation? You may be here today, and you're not a follower of Jesus, and like you're trying to figure that out because things are starting to unravel in your life, and it's a great place to be in church to figure out what is the foundation of life. Second Timothy 3 today essentially is about this. 
in troubled times, God's people need an inspired word. In troubled times, God's people need an inspired word. Let me unpack this thesis for you. First, there's a context as Timothy receives this letter from Paul. Second Timothy is a very personal letter from the apostle. It's probably written while he's in prison under the reign of Nero, Roman, Empire, Roman emperor at the time. He writes to Timothy, who's the pastor of a congregation in the city of Ephesus. Paul very well considers this may be his last bit of instruction to Timothy as he uses words like, I have fought the good fight, I finished the race. This, this may be it, his final word to his beloved disciple. And as a result, he's trying to help Timothy understand how to live in a difficult world. There's evidence that some kind of persecution was beginning. There's evidence that there were people within the church that were creating problems, divisions, leading some people astray. In fact, look at chapter 3 and verse 1. Paul says, understand this, in the last days, there will be times of difficulty. So everything from ungodliness to divisiveness to political pressures to an increasingly hostile culture, these were all part of the reality that Paul and Timothy were facing. And Paul wants this young pastor to be godly and persevere all the way to the end. He wants Timothy to be faithful. And in verse 12, he begins to set the context of how Timothy needs to think about the world. After rehearsing his persecutions in verses 10 and 11, the challenges that he had faced, verse 12, he says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Paul reminds Timothy that the culture in which gospel-loving people are called to live is a hostile culture. And so then he expands the scope, not just to apply this to Timothy, but to say everyone who desires to be godly, everyone who desires to live a godly life will be persecuted. He expands the scope, and essentially what he's saying here is that opposition or persecution, frankly, is the normal experience of the follower of Jesus. And just so you know, that has been the case for most of church history. In fact, I think one of the real reasons that some folks within American evangelicalism are struggling is because this idea of a culture that is opposed to who and what you are is something that folks in the last 50 years are not, we're not very familiar with or comfortable with. We're trying to figure out our way forward of how do we live in a world that is turned against us. So Paul says, the same kind of thing that Jesus said in John 15, that we ought not be surprised when the world hates us. We ought to rejoice when we are persecuted, according to Matthew chapter 5. In fact, the apostle Peter in 1 Peter 4 and verse 12 put it this way, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. That's what I find. People are just, they're like, I can't believe it. And yet I read my Bible, and how, why can't you believe this? But Rejoice. I don't hear that either. I hear a lot more panicking. Rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. I think that there's just a, a lack of preparedness for what is happening around us. 
Paul and Peter are saying something that we need to hear, namely that cultural opposition is the normal context for those who are the followers of Jesus. So listen, you're a high school student, you're getting ready to go to school, maybe you're already there, I can guarantee you that if you are a follower of Jesus, sometime throughout the course of the school year, and I don't care if it's a public school, a Christian school, some group of friends that you're hanging around, there's eventually, if you're going to pursue a godly life, somebody's going to get in your grill and try and take you down from what you, they think is your lofty spiritual position. It's going to happen. And don't be surprised. In fact, you ought to be shocked if it doesn't happen. Go off to college, you're part of a fraternity in a Christian college or a secular college. It doesn't matter. You pursue godliness, there's going to be some level of opposition. You're in your workplace, you ought not be surprised when people look at you and like, you believe that? Like, like you believe the Bible? One of the unique experiences of raising children is what happens when you launch pastor's kids out into the world. Our boys have come back with stories as they've started to work in the community, and man, they meet people, and they're like, so let me get this straight. So you're homeschooled, and you're, you go to church, you're a Christian, and you're a pastor's kid? And it's like they need to sell tickets for the museum. Like, yeah, come check it out. <laughs> and like, you like believe the Bible. Like, like really? Listen, friends, that's becoming more and more normal. The little island where you could be a Christian and kind of just assimilate into the culture that anybody knows that island is going away. And I say, praise God, that's going away. Secondly, verse 13 tells us, all who live a godly life will be persecuted while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So he explains that this opposition will come at the hands of specific people who are a part of the unraveling of the culture. So it's not just that culture is unraveling, it's that bad people are a part of the unraveling of that very society. And in Verse 2 of chapter 3, he describes their character. They're lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy. I can go on and on. You get the point. And then he says, not only are they evil, but there will be imposters, the kind of people who sneak into households or sneak into small groups or sneak into churches and begin to lead people astray. And then he says, and it will go from bad to worse. Their actions will create a scenario where things do not get better, they get more difficult, and they not only will deceive others, but the text says that they themselves are not only deceiving, but being deceived. It's kind of a depressing view, isn't it? You're like, man, I thought you went on vacation. Where are you, what's, what you been reading? My point is not to give you some kind of overly negative view of our culture or a dystopian view of the world, but rather to help you see that Timothy is in the midst of a very difficult culture. But here's why I'm talking about this. Because where does Paul point Timothy in the midst of this kind of challenge? And what he does, and I'll show you this in a minute, is he points Timothy to the authoritative reality of the Scriptures. He doesn't tell Timothy, but it's all going to get better. He doesn't tell Timothy that the persecutions will, will go away and end eventually. He doesn't tell Timothy that eventually he's going to win the culture war. No, no, no. He, those things are not where he points Timothy. Instead, he points him to the Scriptures. 
He points him to what is even more foundational in Timothy's life, what's more foundational than the cultural challenges that he's facing. He, he, he uses the reality of the Scriptures to encourage and comfort and motivate him. And why does he do that? He does that because in troubled times, God's people need an inspired word. You know what happens to your reading when you understand the world and culture like this? It's the same thing that happens to your reading of the Bible as when you are in pain. And let's be honest, when you're in pain, you read the Bible differently, don't you? You wake up and think, I don't know if I can do today. Like, I, I need to hear from the Lord. So you open up your Bible as a desperate person to hear the Word of God. And one of the things I hope that happens to you over the next few weeks is that you start running to the Bible more often than you are right now. I hope that you see the Bible as a refuge from the world around you. I hope that you see the Bible as something that can conquer the fears that run through your soul or the doubts that are storming inside of your heart. I hope that when a friend is hurting or when your spouse is struggling that your, your first step is toward the Bible. Over the last number of weeks, I've been doing a lot of reading about where our culture is headed. And while there is nothing wrong with that per se, I will tell you that I have found myself at times going, I can't figure this out, and I don't even know that I want to anymore. I just need to read the Bible. Because this book is a ballast for my soul. My heart is hungry for God's word, because nothing else will satisfy. So Paul, in the midst of difficulties in Timothy's life, where does he point him? He points him to the Bible. And then he tells him, secondly, to continue in this word. Let's look at this. I've already given you where I'm headed in this text, but let me show you before we get there and talk about the matter of inspiration what Paul says in verses 14 and 15. He says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. So he says, for Timothy, continue. It's interesting, continue is the same word that Jesus used in Matthew, or John rather, 15, the word abide, when he said abide in me. It means to maintain a particular position, to stay committed to a particular activity, or to remain in a certain posture. You see, one of the things that challenging times or a difficult culture can do is to make you think, I gotta do something different. Like, I gotta, I gotta do something different. And what Paul is saying to Timothy, what you need to do is just be sure you're committed to what you've always been committed to. Be sure that you're grounded and anchored in what you believe. Paul reminds Timothy of what he believed and reminds him of, rather, from whom he learned it. I, I assume that he's referring there to Paul himself. So, to continue in the Word involves not only remembering what you believe, but also in remembering in the past the people who God used in the formation of your faith. So, he goes on, and notice... It says verse 15, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. 
which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. He, he reminds Timothy that it was from his childhood that he was acquainted with these sacred writings. And according to chapter 1 and verse 5, his grandmother and his mother were women of great spiritual faith. And so Paul, interestingly, takes Timothy back to his childhood to encourage him to keep believing what he has been taught. He reminds him of the faith and the heritage that he's been given. I think it's extremely instructive that he talks to Timothy this way. You see, I think one of the ways that we encourage one another in persevering and one of the ways that we help one another in faithfulness to the word is by reminding one another of what we collectively believe and by you being reminded of the people who taught you what you understand even now about the Bible. And I don't care if that's only been a few weeks or if that's been 70 years, but there are people that God used in your life in order to help you understand the beauty of his word. And when you are under the press of difficulty and somebody's face is in your mind like they're opposing me, you need to remember all the other faces of people who helped you to know and understand and believe the Bible. I am so grateful for faithful parents, Sunday school teachers, youth leaders, pastors, and college professors who taught me the Bible and lived it before me. They believed the Bible was the very word of God, and their influence on me by virtue of their lives is a part of the foundation of my life and my ministry. Kevin DeYoung, in his book, Taking God at His Word, speaks to this principle. He says this, before chucking the faith that you were taught as a child, think about those from whom you learned it. I went, he writes, to a middle-of-the-road Christian college where the religion professors were often liberal. I saw many of my classmates have their faith deconstructed and never built up again in a healthy way. And when people ask me why I didn't go down the same path, the, the best answer I have, besides the grace of God, is that I trusted my parents and my upbringing more than my professors. I had doubts as a college student. There were questions I didn't know how to answer, but what kept me anchored was the confidence in what I had learned as a child and in those from whom I learned it. Pastors and parents aren't perfect, not even really good ones, and Paul is not saying that mentors must be followed at all costs, but here's the point, and it's very appropriate for teens and 20-somethings who like to question every authority except their own. He said that, not me. So. <laughs> It's true, but he said, before you leave behind what you used to believe about the Bible, consider who taught you to believe and what you used to believe about God's word. So listen, if you were raised in a Christian home, if you're a child right now in this room or a teenager or you're a college student and you were raised in a Christian home, you ought to thank God for that home. Don't you view your testimony as some kind of subpar story? Like if someone says, what's your story? How'd you come to faith in Christ? Don't be like, well, I was, I was raised in a Christian home. It's boring, stupid testimony. It's got no jazz to it. God didn't save me from a life of crime as a three-year-old stealing graham crackers. I mean, so... Some of you, you, you treat your story like that, as if being raised in a Christian home is like subpar Christianity. You ought to thank God for that home. When someone says, tell me your story, you're like, Christian home, baby. Parents love Jesus. Follow them all the way. 13 years, Bible, in my mind, in my heart. And if that hasn't been your experience, 
You know what I'm talking about? Because you would say, man, I wish I had Christian parents. Like, I had to undo so many things. I didn't know what it means to follow Jesus. My parents didn't show me. I had to find it in a discipleship group or in a college buddy or how to follow. And you've had to work so hard, and yet you can be able to point people back even to your own walk with Christ and say, I thank God for that discipleship leader. He helped me to understand my faith. I thank God for this pastor or this small group leader who poured into my life. That's why, listen, if you're serving as a discipler of somebody, you, um, if you serve in our children's ministry, if you're a youth leader, you need to know, friend, you are incredibly important because you're building the confidence into the lives of children and teenagers and new believers. And part of God's plan for the perseverance of the faith is to put people in our lives who anchor us when pressure comes. In fact, one of the reasons that Children need to worship in this room with their families is because they need to look around like all of us need to look around and see, my goodness, look at all these people who believe this. They need to see you sing songs like how firm a foundation. And you need it because there's time when you come in this room just like I do and your heart moves from strong faith to weak faith and some Sundays you come in and it's a little weaker. The pressure's gotten so large and you come in this room and you hear God's people sing and you hear the word and your heart leaves this place strengthened. Why? Because there's something about the community of faith that says, my goodness, look at all these people who love Jesus, and your faith helps my faith, and that's the way it's supposed to be. So there's not only a context and there's a continuation. Finally, there's this issue of authority. So the title of my message is, It Is Inspired. We haven't even gotten there yet. I know, I know, I'm getting there. We'll be there, just a minute. Look at verse 16. All Scripture is breathed out by God. Some of you may have been raised in an older translation where it says that all Scripture is inspired. Newer translations have adjusted that translation in large part because the word inspired in English doesn't capture the significance of what is being communicated in, in, in the Bible. Because inspired in English can indicate that it's an inspiring kind of book. Like you read it, it's literature, and it like moves you emotionally. Or you could think, some people think of inspiration like, like God is individually dictating the words. Like, like Paul or Peter have a direct line to God, and they're just God's scribes as he's writing things down. Other people think that inspiring or an inspiration simply means some human product that God then superintends, and he breathes over it, thus making it, this, making it inspired, like it has some kind of higher qualities. But what Paul does is he puts together two words, a word that means God and a word that means breath. He says all scripture is God breathed, and he's pulling from the idea in the book of Genesis where God creates by virtue of his authority as God by speaking. Genesis 1 says, and God said, let there be light, and there's light. Like, that's power. Like, just to say it, and it is, that, that's power that only God has. I can't, I can create things, but I can't speak and create things. I wish I could. Like, painted wall. You know, <laughs> doesn't happen. 
no matter how loud I yell at it. Be painted! It takes a kid or a contractor and money. Doesn't, I can't speak that reality. It's ridiculous and somewhat funny just because it's so out of place. But God speaks and it, he creates. And the idea is that out of the same authoritative power by which God created the world, God speaks and his outbreathed word comes to us in the Bible. So Paul's main point is this about inspiration. So what do you need to connect with inspiration? Connect this, that to be inspired or to be God-breathed means that it has divine origin. It means that the source of the Bible is God himself. It means that divine revelation was produced, yes, through the instrument of human authors with different personalities, different time periods, different messages, even different styles of, of writing and different command of the Greek language or Hebrew language. It means that God moved on those who wrote such that they wrote the word of God. Here's how 1 Peter chapter 1 puts it. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, in 2 Timothy 3, when Paul says all Scripture, because... At this point in time, he's referring to the Old Testament. So in context, verse 16 specifically is referring to the Old Testament, and yet we know from other places in the New Testament that the writings of Paul, Peter, and others are considered to be of the same quality of God-breathedness as the Old Testament. 2 Peter 3.16, for instance, Peter attributes to Paul's works the quality of Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul himself says he's communicating to them the Word of God. Therefore, when I say that the Bible is inspired, I mean that it is authoritative, that the Bible carries the weight of divine authority because it comes from God himself, that God breathed out his words to mankind. Again, Kevin DeYoung, every book, every chapter, every line, every word, all of it is breathed out by God. Not just the theological parts, not just the memorable stuff, not just the parts that resonate with us, all of it. History, chronology, philosophy, every truth the Bible affirms ought to be taken as God's truth. Every word in the Bible is in there because God wanted it there, and therefore we should listen to the Bible and stick with the Bible and submit to ourselves to the teaching of the Bible because it is God's Bible. So, remember those questions I asked you at the beginning of the sermon? Everything about our morals, our ethics, our beliefs, they're all rooted in what you believe about the Bible. To submit to the Bible is to submit to God. So let me make this very practical. Is that how you view the Bible? What, what authority does the Bible have in your life? Do you, do you allow your life to be shaped? Do you allow your heart to be shaped by this book? Do you allow it to shape your understanding of your actions? Let me make it very specific. Let me give you one example. 1 Corinthians 7, 39 tells us that believers are only to marry 
believers, that a believer should not marry an unbeliever. 1 Corinthians 7, 39. It's very, very clear, very plain. So what do you do if you start to fall in love with a non-believer? What if they, what, what if you, um, what, what if that person never becomes a follower of Jesus? They never become a Christian. What are you going to do? Because what you do in that moment determines where your real authority base is. Is your authority, no, look, I need to be happy. And seriously, like, I love this person, and, and if I love them, it's got to be right, right? Because after all, I love them, and God certainly wouldn't want me to not love them. You, I mean, they're not a believer, but seriously, I mean, I, like, like, there's nobody else like this person. I've dated all kinds of other people, and like, no one makes me feel like they feel, like, like, like I feel like I need to get married to this person. And over here is 1 Corinthians seven thirty nine that says no. And in that moment, the question is not, are you going to get married or not? The question, underneath the question is, what's the authority in your life? Now, that's one example. I could apply that to sexuality. I could apply that to morals, to ethics. The issue is not just what you do. The question underneath the question is to what extent does the Bible have authority in your life? And friends, that is a huge question. In fact, culturally, it's really becoming a very important question. Not too long ago, I was sharing the gospel with somebody. I was talking to them about the good news, and, and the person said to me, so the Bible teaches a lot of stuff about sexual ethics. I said, yeah. Do I have to believe all of that to become a Christian? Can I believe in Jesus and not this? I'd never been asked that question before. So Paul points Timothy toward the Bible in the midst of great difficulty and growing persecution as the basis of his hope when the culture turns against you, or you're the only Christian in your fraternity, or you're the only Christian at work, or you're the only Christian in your group of friends, that's when you need to be reminded that you don't just have the Bible, your whole life is built on the Bible. That when someone says to you, so you believe what's in this Bible, like this is how you're gonna govern your life, that you say, absolutely, because at the end of the day, this is what your whole life, according to being a follower of Jesus, is built upon. Text goes on and it tells us what the Bible is profitable for. There's a number of things. It's profitable for teaching, meaning the Bible is able to instruct us as to who God is and our need for the gospel. It is helpful for reproof, meaning it shines a light on what's wrong. It's profitable for correction, meaning it directs us another path. It's profitable for training. It helps us to keep knowing how to grow in grace and to keep moving along in godliness. And it's helpful for us to be completely equipped. In other words, listen, you don't lack any spiritual resource that you need to navigate the culture in which you live. Eventually, we'll talk about the way in which the Bible is sufficient to be able to help us to know how to be godly and right in the world. And friends, what a gift we have in the scriptures. We have the revelation of God to mankind. And in fact, it's so central. Chapter four, Paul says this, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Notice all those qualifiers. Paul like ramped it up big time. He's like, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing. I mean, this is big, like, Paul, Timothy, give me your attention. And what does he tell him to do? Preach the word. Why the word? Because the word is God's word. That's what it is. Be ready in season and out of season. I take it to mean when things are favorable and when things aren't. And then reprove, rebuke, and exhort 
with complete patience. Rats. <laughs> Man, I wish that wasn't there. With complete patience and teaching. So listen, no matter what season of life or what challenge of culture, the Word of God is the hope of the world. Why? Because it is the breathed out message from God. It is the authoritative Word from God Himself. So if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, I am so glad you're here. And my guess is part of the reason why you're here is because all, some of, or maybe all of the other foundations that you've built your life upon are starting to crumble or they've already fallen through. And I want to offer you today God's word, which essentially says, you're a sinner, I'm a sinner. It's a huge problem. And the beautiful story is that God sent Jesus to take our sin, to make us a group of people who are forgiven so that our lives could be built upon his work, not our own. And then God puts within our hearts a desire to obey in a way that we could have never obeyed before. If you want to start somewhere, you've not read the Bible, start in the book of John. John himself said that these things are written that you may believe and may have life in Jesus' name. If you already are a follower of Jesus, can you just thank God that he's given you the sure foundation of the Bible? Would you point your heart in gratitude towards this Bible and say, God, thank you for this glorious word. Tomorrow morning or tonight, when you take your Bible, and maybe for some of you it's been a long time since you've read the Bible, just take a moment before you open it and say something like this, God, this is your word, and I'm about to hear from you, and I can't wait to see what you say to me. So let's roll and jump in and see how the Bible becomes not just a book, but a portal to see things about yourself and the glory of God. Maybe you've started doubting the authority of God's word, or maybe you've created a category in your mind where you believe it's God's word except when it comes to your morality and your sexual ethics. Or, or you believe in God's word, but not when it comes to some particular category in your life. And maybe this idea of it being the authoritative word is God by his spirit through his word saying it's, it's time for you to turn from that. There'll be some folks up here afterwards who'd love to pray with you. You might benefit from coming forward and just saying, you know, I need to confess. I need to have someone pray for me because my life is not under the authority of the word. I'm a follower of Jesus, but my life is not under the authority of the word and it's got to change. Maybe in the midst of difficulties or challenges, you need to recommit to saturate your mind, to fill your heart, to bring the Bible into your home in a new way, to have conversations center more around the Word. In troubled times, God's people need the inspired Word. So let us read the Bible more. Let's memorize the Bible more. Let's love the Bible more. Let's sing the Bible more. Let's obey the Bible more. Let's believe the Bible more. Because at the end of the day, this Bible is the foundation 
of everything. It is the breathed out, authoritative word from our Creator. Thanks be to God for His word.